As I mentioned earlier, we're starting a four-week series uh, about work, uh, our work, my work, your work, God's work. And this Sunday, uh, we start, but this Sunday also marks the 15th anniversary of 9-11, which I'm sure most of you uh, remember to some degree. I was thinking back to that morning of my own experience. I was a freshman in college at Florida State, and I came back to my dorm from my first class um, to find a big crowd huddled around a television. Some people were crying, and mostly everyone was just trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And I I was talking to a couple of people. Some people here were in middle school then, which is crazy. Uh, Fifth grade? Fifth grade? Yeah, there's a a big fifth grade cohort. Um, But it's worth asking around, maybe also along with those those table cards, asking around uh, what people remember, because it's pretty... It's pretty remarkable, even even for some of our fifth graders, that for for most of us, I think for most of our country, is the first time there was this this real feeling of of vulnerability, um, of uh, certainly of kind of a national collective sorrow uh, for our generation, at least. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting uh, to explore that uncertainty, that anger, that fear. Uh, that that you might have felt that day or in the seasons following that. Um, We'll spend some time during today's uh, prayers of the people kind of bringing these emotions and these anxieties to the Lord because uh, 1 Peter 5 says if we cast our anxieties on Jesus, he he cares for us. He cares about those feelings, even those feelings that we have 15 years later, even those feelings that we might be having for the first time. One thing, though, in in remembering that event 15 years ago that I think it's easy to miss and, and I think it really pertains to, to what we'll be talking about over this next month is the, the strategy chosen by those terrorists. Uh, sure, they, they also targeted the Pentagon, but the center of our collective painful memory of that day was because they targeted the World Trade Centers in New York City. So those, those towers in that city kind of stand, they represent a symbol, a center of the height of American, the height of Western commerce and industry, the height of our work. Somewhere in the twisted logic, there's a recognition that work is central to who we are as human beings. I think it, maybe it's an overly exp, uh, simplistic explanation. I think that they, the people, that, the men that drove those planes um, or caused those planes to, to fly into those towers were trying to hurt America just financially. I think if they wanted to do that, they would have like, flown into Detroit factories or Iowa cornfields or something, like if they really wanted to hurt us that way. I think it's, it's more of a symbol right? A symbol. And, and I think that's also why we felt so vulnerable, because they messed with a symbol of who we are, with work at the core of that, at the core of human life and human flourishing and human potential. There's something built into us, a gift and a grace in our working. This is part of our, our calling to make 
and to do and to join with God's work in the world. The tragedy, though, is that it doesn't take a major act of terrorism like this to distort or to de destroy that elemental part of what work is and does for us, who we are. I think our, our view of work is often too small or, or maybe it's too specific. Work seems like a burden to most of us. We just want rest. We sing about it. Um, we just want rest. We want comfort and ease and stability. Like many of us dream about winning the lottery so we don't have to work, right? I think if you did a uh, kind of a word uh, association game. Most people, when you said work, they would say something like the grind, right? Like the, that's what work feels like for us. And I also realize the challenges of a series like this, even in our congregation, because you look around and, and to say that what it means to be human is to work is pretty hard because there's people here who there's a couple of you who enjoy your jobs, but there's also some who are really dissatisfied in your jobs, who, who are stitching together multiple jobs, some of you who are jobless, some of you who will never have a job. Um, there, there's folks who are staying at home with kids who most of the world around you doesn't seem to think that that is a very full-time job. There's, you know, there, there's students who you're stuck in this kind of limbo of like, working to get work, right? And, and then maybe when you get done with that, you, you realize, like, I don't know if I wanted to do that kind of work that I invested all those years and all that money into. It's a little hard. What, what does this work story sound like to, to all of you guys, right? Well, I, I want to explore the story of work where the story of Scripture starts, and that's at the beginning. That's in Genesis and in the Garden, I think there's a slide for this one. This is in Genesis chapter 1. It says, God said, let us make humanity in our own image and keep, I, I, I bold-faced it, um, just keep an eye on how often this image comes up. In our own image to resemble us that they might take charge of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. Is that right? Yeah. <clears throat> the livestock and all the earth, the crawling things of the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish and sea and birds and sky and everything crawling on the ground. The Lord took the human being and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it, to cultivate it. I think in the very beginning, we can learn two things about the purpose of work. That humanity, all humanity is made in this image of God, bears the image of our creator. We act as icons. Like an icon is, is you look through an icon and you see the image that that icon represents. It, it, it's like a... Uh, and, ancient military uh, term that, that if, if Caesar puts out an, an icon, it's an emblem of him. So you're talking to his icon, you're talking to him. We, we act as God's icons made by God to be like him, to follow him, to be in relationship with him, to work with God. 
We learn that since we resemble our maker, we too are makers. We shape everything we touch. Like when you wake up in the morning, the outfit, the choices you chose to put that outfit on, you made something of your world there. Like the second you crack that egg to make an omelet, like you made something new that didn't exist before. Like you're not having eggs, you're having an omelet that you made, right? We make something of our world. We shape everything we touch. Like, and hopefully not as like wrecking ball toddlers, like in a non-childproofed world. Like that is one way to shape everything you touch. I can attest to that. Hopefully it's as responsible stewards, as people who've been given charge of something to take care of because they possess the ability to take good care of it. Like farmers, gently cultivating and coaching and coaxing creation towards fruitfulness, towards flourishing like craftswomen and craftsmen working with the grain to bring about something even more beautiful and useful than the, the perfect tree that they took. They, they take lumber and they make something even more beautiful than the tree, if that's possible. That's the whole point of this be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and master it business. God is trusting us. God is calling us to be generative, to create with the lowercase c, because we bear the indelible image of a creator, big C. That means, like the creator, we make and we work, but we also rest. Because if God can afford to rest, we can too. We don't just rest because of necessity, we rest because of grace. I remember in college, my friend Matt Orth, who was here a couple weeks ago, he introduced me to the idea that sometimes the most worshipful thing you can do is take a nap, right? That's a terrible advice to give an undergrad in college. It's probably really good advice to give a grad student, but it is terrible for an undergrad that you might be doing spiritual work by napping, right? By skipping a class. But I think the point stands, right? To live and to work and to worship in a world which God created and in which God still works. To live in a world with room to trust enough to just stop. To take your hands off in order to allow God to work. And allow God to to restore you. To take time to enjoy and soak in the grace and the abundance of it all. The next, the next scripture in Genesis is from Genesis 3. It says, To the man he said, Because you listened to your wife's voice. This is the turn here. This is the turn in that story. You listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded. Don't eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land, that fertile earth from which you're made. Because of you, in pain you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you. Even as you eat the field's plants, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land since from it you are taken, you are soil and to soil you will return. We then learn in this story that that icon, that image of God has been cracked. It's been cracked by Adam and Eve's disobedience and striving 
to be more than images of God. I, I, I think in doing this, they, they were trying to be gods. They were trying to not just be representatives, they were trying to be the, the real article. We learn what we feel on a daily basis, that difficulty in ourselves and in others. We, we learn that creation has been cursed by this disobedience in such a way that our work is hard and sometimes not fruitful, sometimes not enjoyable. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere or that we put so much in and we don't take that much out. There are weeds and thistles and thorns and hard soil. If you, if you want to pull some culture out of the ground, you're going to have to sweat for it. Gone are the days of trusting that God, trusting God and working with him. Gone are those days that that meant bountiful gardens and pleasing results. Now it's harder. It's a mixed bag. Some weeks are good. Some weeks are awful. You're going to break your back <laughs> doing it. But if all this is true, look closer and realize that, that there's even a little bit of grace in this curse. That God didn't curse humanity. God cursed the ground. He made it hard on us, but he didn't curse us. He didn't curse our work. Work existed as good before Adam and Eve sinned. And it will continue as good. Though the going is going to be kind of tough for us. We've all, we've all felt these twin pains, right? Whatever your, your kind of work is, it, whether your work is selling houses or writing computer code or writing papers or raising babies or tutoring or teaching or making something with your hands or even trying to get a job or get a home, you've experienced the, the two struggles. One, the struggle of the ground fighting back against you pest and weeds and unforeseen threats and disappointments. You've also experienced that cracked icon failing to reflect the image of the God of grace who pours his love out on all creation. You've experienced that in yourself. If you look at yourself, you, you see those cracks. It's really easy to see when you look at other people, right? Like that's, that's easier. Our work reflects that brokenness too, that crack. It reflects that when our, our work hurts others, when it hurts creation, when it takes advantage or grasp, when it contributes to rather than calls out injustice. We express our brokenness when we operate out of greed or out of scarcity rather than grace and abundance, when when we slip right into the stream of the patterns of this world rather than resisting them and being a renewal effort. That's when our brokenness manifests in our work. And that's, I think, most of the reason why work is a drag, why work threatens to kill us, why, why work isn't life giving to us, but life taking from us. But as, as the story of Scripture develops... We feel that ache as you read. We started with the beginning of the Bible, and as you keep reading, you feel that ache for thousands of years, that ache to mend this broken icon of God. No matter how hard we try, we can't do it for ourselves. There's something deep and fundamental about this brokenness. That's why um, just a couple chapters later, it gets into to violence, and it gets into all this sort of oppression that hadn't existed uh, in this animosity between people. 
It's not just a matter of working hard to mend this icon. It's not about doing the right things or saying the right things. It's not even a matter of giving everything up. It's going to take an intervention to mend this broken image of God. The kind of intervention that the prophets wanted, that the prophets just stood on a street corner and yelled about. This, this intervention for shalom and justice, this intervention to set the world to rights because it was tipped over and it's not working. This kind of intervention that comes with the advent of Jesus, with his work and with his words, with his death and with his resurrection. Jesus proves to be what the letter of Colossians calls him, the image, the icon of the invisible God. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. It's when we attach our hopes and our whole allegiance to him, when we become his disciples, that means learning. That means learning not just who he is, but how he is. That's when we're, we're formed by his spirit into his likeness. That we can be restored in our calling. That we can become icons of Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, is to become more Christ-like, an icon of Jesus. It means to, to reach forward to the new creation, which Jesus is the first fruits of. Just as Adam and Eve once walked with God and tended the garden, soon we'll walk with Christ in the garden city coming down. We'll, we'll go from Genesis all the way to Revelation here. I'll let you guys fill in the middle on your own time. How about that? John the Revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated, seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. All this crying from pain of labor, both childbirth and our work, that was a result of sin and resulted in death, will be no more. Those are great words on that anniversary of 9-11, right? Those ground zeros in this world will, will be renewed. Not exactly how this all is going to happen. This this new heaven and this new earth, this new Jerusalem. We've read all summer, First and Second Samuel, about David. This is the, the new city of David coming down. The former things will pass away. But I don't think it's all just going to be wiped out. I think there's two good analogies to help us understand how that works. This is the hardest thing to wrap our heads around, but this is so vital to our, our view of the world as we live out our faith, as we work and as we live. I think two good analogies to help us realize this. First, consider Jesus' life. If, if you read the Gospels, 
And you read Jesus' repeated statements from the beginning of his ministry on, and he talks about the kingdom of the heavens, if you're reading Matthew, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. But the kingdom is here. Jesus has inaugurated, has brought this kingdom down, and this kingdom exists right there in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of all these powers and principalities seemingly running amok. Uh, the kingdom is present and is real. And I think it's especially present and real in those meals with outcasts, those healings of the lame and and the deaf and the blind, the release of prisoners, the former things were passing away and Jesus was making all things new. That's what it looks like to have the new coming down and renewing the old. Second, consider Jesus' resurrected body as he appears to the disciples and many others, that body raised by God's spirit after three days still bore scars. Thomas asked for those scars to even know who Jesus was because he couldn't know Jesus unless he knew Jesus' suffering. Even though Thomas didn't stick around to see it, Thomas knew Jesus by his wrists, by his side, by his feet. But that body also passed through locked doors. (laughs) That body was also completely unrecognizable to two of Jesus' closest friends as he walked with them for miles on the Emmaus Road before their eyes were opened and they recognized him as as he'd struck up the grill and broke bread with them, right? That is what the old passing away and Jesus making all things new looks like. There's this radical continuity and this radical discontinuity existing in the same space, and that should fire up our imaginations and our everyday lives. Not that we can expect for everything to change and be radically different, but for everything to be different in the midst of our lives, because Jesus is present, because his kingdom is here and it's coming. The, the next verse says, I didn't see a temple in the city. Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. No temple is necessary. This is inconceivable for a worldview of that being the place where you meet God because we'll all be in God's presence once again. After all, there was no temple necessary in the garden because they walked with and they worked with God. There also be no need for a sun and a moon to shine. We're not necessarily told that they're just going to like burn up and go away, but we don't need them. Because God's glory will illumine our eyes and we'll see, maybe even for the first time, we'll truly see by that light. And the kings will bring their glory and honor the nations into this city. This alludes to the hopes of Isaiah 60. If you read that chapter, (laughs) they bring everything. The kings of the earth bring ships and treasures They bring their subjects. And and if anything, this shows us that their work and their their material things will endure. 
They're, they'll be offered as a tribute to God. They won't, just be, they, they won't be just burnt up. They won't just go away. If we learn anything, it's that, that their work and ours will persevere in some mysterious way. How different is this from a few of the ways that we imagine all this winding up, right? Like, I think most of us grew up with, with probably one of three ways to think of this, right? That it's all going to hell in a handbasket, right? And it's going to burn up and God will figure it out, right? So we just get what we can while we can, right? That, that's, that's one. That's not a very charitable view of that view, but that's one view. Or there's the heaven view that's like that sweet by and by. It's going to be so nice when we all learn harp and we all sit on clouds in robes. It'll be great. And then there's the third view that heaven's just going to be like earth, but without the work, right? We'll have, finally have time to cultivate these hobbies. We'll get to play golf, you know? Like the, I saw this commercial. I haven't seen the show, and so I will not recommend one way or the other, but I probably will not recommend, uh, called The Good Place, this new show that's on TV, and, and it's about heaven, and she, the main character is so fascinated that she can drink, like, 12 glasses of wine and not have a hangover in heaven. Like, that, that's, the ver- that's kind of the version of heaven that most of us have. We do all this thing, but it's not going to hurt. It's not going to be hard. But instead, in, in Scripture, in this whole this whole scripture story that started with Genesis and is ending with Revelation, we find a picture of a renewed creation that has already begun in Jesus. And then it, it kind of leaks back into the present and pulls us forward. It leaks back in every corner of our lives and it affects our world and our work in this world now. This way of looking at the world in this version uh, if, if we have this, this way of looking at the world and this version of work, I think it's going to revolutionize the way, we, the way we work, the way we are in this world. Because I think our work, no matter what that work is, like, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and, and tell you, like, make a two-column list of, of the kind of work that is great work and the kind of, that's just okay work, right? Whatever your kind of work, if it's aimed at that, vision of shalom and that vision of justice and that vision of worship and that renewal that we see in Revelation, I think it's good. It has the possibility to be good work. The last slide uh, there. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water shining like crystal, flowing like the throne of God, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life. Remember that tree? Which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of nations. There will no longer be a curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will rule forever and always. This is us grabbing back 
or being gifted back more accurately, our vocation of ruling, of stewarding. They will rule forever and always. Our work, whatever it is, whether or not we get paid for it, will reek of this sort of care and cultivation. Consider right now what it might look like for the job that you have now, whether you like it or not. What would that job look like in, in, in heaven, in this new heavens and new earth? And I think by doing that, I think I might have just made my wife unemployed because I don't think there will be a need for a physical therapist in the new heavens and new earth with all these other descriptors. At least consider how your job might, right now, might be some sort of little taste of, of that new heavens and new earth. Like a, a signpost pointing someone to another world. Another world with that sort of relief, that sort of communion with God, that sort of healing, that sort of verdant flourishing, sort of light and clarity. So much light in that vision. Consider, finally, the, the sort of presence that that entails in our daily lives here and now. Remember, that, that leaks backwards to now. That God cares about your work because he's made you in his image as a worker. Jesus says in John's gospel, my father is still working, I am also working. And I, I, I read that to think that that's still true. That's still the case, that God is still working. Also consider that the Apostle Paul is one of his favorite words for a fellow ordinary Christian on mission was a co-worker, a sunergos, right? I think Katie DeCanto probably intuited the importance of this working together uh, with Mercury Studio. Consider that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and that will one day, if you're in Christ, will raise you from the dead, is also at work, that, that that spirit might resurrect your work. Also cultivate habits to, to create some of this awareness, right? You're not just going to walk out of here and all of a sudden have your mind changed and like, oh, I, if I had that ability as a preacher, I, w I, would, I would be really happy about it. But instead, I think it's going to be on you guys to cultivate some of these habits, these habits of awareness of God's presence in your work. And I'll recommend, I'll post it for you guys um, when we post the, the audio of this, but I'll post this prayer. Um, it's like walking work prayer. It's from Mor uh, Mary Kate Morse's prayer guidebook. And this sort of prayer is predicated on faith that God not only cares about every detail of our lives, not every detail of our work days, but he's actually present with us. These are simple prayers, right? But think how your day might be changed if, 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 these, uh, if this is how you're breathing, if this is how you're walking, if you're walking with God. Think about how you might be further renewed in his image and light, likeness as you're walking with him. In this, in this weird time that we're in, this time between a garden and a garden city, we can work, and we can work with God. Let me pray, guys.
Father, we, we pray today for, for, <coughs> for our earthly cities. Um, we pray for New York City this morning. Um, we pray for Durham. Uh, all the, the buzz and excitement um, in parts of the city that represent work good work and in in many cases work for justice and and peace uh, we, we pray that you bless that and, and you um, in that work create more and more a sense of your presence and your concern more and more the sense that that work whether people know it or not is expressing an impulse that you've put in us because you've made us all in your image father i, I pray that we grow more and more into the icon and image of Jesus um, as we as we live and as we speak and as we work this good news in this world I pray for everyone in this room with their their work whether their jobs or not um, I pray that you bless it Lord that you bless it as pleasing acts of worship to you as small little ordinary temple experiences where people commune with you and bring others into your presence. We pray that we might see by your light and that you might guide us as we walk. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.